Kevin spoke that we are grateful for the privilege we have to participate in the many education courses throughout the week. We're thankful for the generosity of the church and for BYU to host so many things and also for the speakers for their prayerful preparation that they have had for us. We pray for this very few this evening, especially Barbara that she made me by inspiration and I my pleasure in her efforts and her preparation. We love thee, our grateful for Son Jesus Christ, grateful for the restored gospel, grateful for living prophet, and ask that thou would please have him feel our prayers and love offered him as we have that he as he continues to lead a worldwide global church. We pray for missionary opportunities and pray that we might be able to fill in my love and we say his name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> My girls were here yesterday, sitting in the front, holding up signs for me, saying, go mom. <laughs> so, um, because I love them dearly, and not because they want to be on the spotlight, but because they actually do, but they don't admit it, I will introduce you to my little girls. This is Jane. Can you go stand up there? Jane's six. Can I give a wave, Jane? <laughs> They have the privilege of me picking them up from school and driving them around to BYU and hanging out with me. <laughs> Isn't that so fun? And then sitting through an hour of a lecture they've heard like a million times. Hi, girls. No, no, no. Okay. All right, love you. You guys can go with Aunt Jen. And then there's the Aunt Jen, who is the savior of everything. Hi, huh, Jen. <laughs> Jen is the girl yet. No, honestly. <laughs> okay. I, education week, day, day number two, doing well? So glad to hear. I love the spirit of campus when you are all here. It makes, it makes life so fun and giddy. So thanks for being here. Thanks for walking the streets and going to the classes and enjoying the food and laughing and smiling and all that you're doing. We, we appreciate you being here. We love having you here on campus. I know you come from all over the world, really. And have made a lot of sacrifices, whether it's in time or whether it's in getting babysitters or whether it's in money, whatever it is. Thank you. There are always sacrifices associated with putting the things of God first. So I appreciate your sacrifice of being here. I wanted to just go through a quick review of what we talked about yesterday. It's going to be very quick and then jump more into women, actually the history of priesthood and then women at church. And tying that into men as well. So first of all, we talked about, we went through kind of the chronology of leaders of the church asking us, both men and women, to study the priesthood. So we have, first of all, Sister Burton asking, and we have Elder Ballard speaking at Women's Conference. We had President Nelson in 2015, as he was called as the um, president of the Home of the Twelve, asking women to use and speak with their priesthood power and authority. Then we have, in 2018, President Nelson again, but this time speaking to the men, concerning uh, concerning his concern that both women and men are not using their priesthood privileges. Then, in 2019, President Nelson again spoke of women receiving their spiritual treasures and talked about the importance of us understanding that the restoration of the priesthood is just as relevant for women as it is for men. Then we had quotes from Sister Bingham, and her presidency regarding women in the priesthood and pleading with us to teach this to all the young men and young women and those we have stewardship over. The admission from 
Sister Bonnie, and Sister Joy Jones, uh, regarding her misunderstanding or lack of understanding of priesthood. Then the promise and understanding from President Nelson again regarding women being endowed according to their covenants. And then again, his renewal of the invitation for all of us to increase our understanding of priesthood power and temple covenants. I put this slide up yesterday. I told somebody I would add to it. But you know what? I haven't. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It just had to happen today. But then we're going to go on then from this from this to talking about what priesthood. We talked about priesthood. We talked about defining priesthood. And so we talked about Elder and Sister Brendan. We talked about the confusion regarding priesthood and how we can define priesthood as a big picture priesthood and then the earth, the dirt priesthood, and understanding the bigger context of priesthood. And then also, breaking it down, and we're going to break it down even more today, but breaking it down into priesthood structures, the hierarchical administrative priesthood structure, which is New Testament, and the patriarchal familial structure, which we usually see as Old Testament, and then the combining of that in the Restoration. We talked about the definition of priesthood as well. Uh, we talked about the, the, the distinction between priesthood presiding in the family and priesthood presiding at church, and the role of priesthood in each. And then we talked about the definition of priesthood, that is the most current definition in the handbook of 2022. So all of this was yesterday with a few stories thrown in there and some insights and some guidance and hopefully a lot of the spirit. My, my plea for you, as it always is, and I recognize I did not say this yesterday, although I alluded to it, is just simply that you will let the Spirit guide you and your understanding. I remember when I was a, a freshman at um, South Salem High School, I'm from Salem, Oregon, and my teacher, brilliant man, his early morning seminary class, he he saw me sitting on the side in the classroom, and I was studying something clearly completely different than anything we were talking about in class. And rather than say, Barb, are you with us, or anything like to that, he said, Barb, what are you learning about? The way he asked that question helped me to see that he understood that I could be learning something very significant and important on my own that was not necessarily what he was teaching in class. I was actually learning about how the Spirit teaches, which is significant in that moment. And then he said to me simply, please keep learning from the Spirit. And then he just left it that, and I kept learning from the Spirit, and I learned a lot that day. And I've continued that process in learning by the Spirit. I often go to, to conferences and, and lectures, and even general conference, with the interest and desire to listen to and learn from what the speaker is saying. But more importantly, I try to put myself in a position in a gathering of people or by myself in a sacred room to know what the Lord is saying. That's my hope for you with the priesthood. I hope that in your own hearts you're praying to have a greater understanding of this topic. I appreciate those of you who some have mentioned as I was coming up that you're praying for me, and I really appreciate that. I'm praying for you too. I really am. And I'm praying to ask the Lord that He will bless you in your understanding of this topic. So I'm just going to give you um, a kind of brief understanding or a brief history of the priesthood. I know that many of you know this, but I'm going to put this in context of the Restoration, Joseph Smith, and, and bringing it to our day, what the leaders of the Church have taught us today. So first of all, 
This is the quote that I mentioned yesterday. I wanted to give it to you today. I think I mentioned I was going to actually give you this one. This one I followed through with. It's Dr. Mukanti. He says, This doctrine of the priesthood, unknown in the world and but little known even in the church, cannot be learned out of scriptures alone. It is not set forth in the sermons and teachings of the prophets and apostles, except in small measure. The doctrine of the priesthood is known only by personal revelation. It comes line upon line and precept upon precept by the power of the Holy Ghost to those who love and serve God with all their heart, might, mind, and strength. Priesthood is power like none other on earth or in heaven. So when Joseph Smith is a young man, he obviously we, we know that he has the first vision. He has the appearance of the Father and the Son, and they teach him about the gospel. They teach him a little bit more about about what it is and what church he's, he should not be joining. We also learn from that experience that Joseph Smith has a deeper understanding of God. We don't know how much we know. We don't know how much he knew. We don't know what exactly what the Lord taught. We know a few things, and we know some significant things. But we don't know necessarily what Joseph knew at what time. We don't know, for example, when Joseph received section two of the Doctrine and Covenants, the first recorded section in our Doctrine and Covenants today, we don't know if Joseph really understood what Moroni was saying to him when he revealed this section. He revealed a lot more than this. But if you go to section two of your Doctrine and Covenants, it says simply this. It says Moroni, but this is what we have in section two. Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. But Joseph, 17 years old, he was praying to God for forgiveness of his sins. His mother lives there, his father lives there, his family lives there. He loves his parents. But at this point, does he know what it means to have his heart turned to his fathers? Does he know what that meant for everyone as a 17-year-old young man? We don't know for sure. But one thing we do understand is Joseph knew because it was repeated over and over again that Elijah would come. And notice the date, 1823. That Joseph is going to have to wait over a decade for this promise to be fulfilled. So, with an understanding of Elijah coming, we have an understanding of, we need to understand then who even Elijah was. Before we get to Elijah, though, I'm going to bring us back to our heavenly parents, and Adam and Eve. This is President Benson. This is from such a great talk. I mentioned it yesterday. I had a lot of quotes from this talk in here. It's called, What I Hope You Teach Your Children and Grandchildren About the Temple. He says this, When our heavenly father placed Adam and Eve on this earth, he did so with the purpose in mind of teaching them how to regain his presence. Our father promised a savior to redeem them from their fallen condition. He gave them the plan of salvation and told them to teach their children faith in Jesus Christ and repentance. Further, Adam and his posterity were commanded by God to be baptized, to receive the Holy Ghost, and to enter into the order of the Son of God. Now, yesterday we talked a little bit about the order of the Son of God, but notice the statement by President Benson. To enter into the order of the Son of God is the equivalent today of entering into the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood, which is only received in the house of the Lord. We, we, again, have to be careful with nuances. We, we often teach that when a young man enters to and receives the Melchizedek priesthood, 
that he is entering into the holy order after the Son of God, because it's another name. We have to be careful with that, because according to President Benson and many others, entering into the order of the Son of God only happens in the temple. And both women and men enter into this order of the Son of God. No one can enter into the order of the Son of God without a husband or a wife at their side. Whether that happens now or what happens in eternity, it has to happen that way. I have to say bless you to my daughter because it's a habit. Bless you, Jane. Okay. So going forward with it. The picture of the order, or this entry into the holy order of the Son of God, this is a quote by, by Robert Miller. He used to be the dean of religious education here at BYU. He says, the patriarchal order was established by God and predates mortal institutions. So, so why is it that, that God put an order of priests on the earth? Well, it's because it's the same order that he had pre-mortally and will continue to have post-mortally, and it was the order that he entered into as well. So the patriarchal order was established by God and predates mortal institutions. Our God is also our Father, our Father in heaven. He is a man, a glorified, resurrected man, a man of holiness. God lives in the family unit. In the pre-mortal existence, our first estate, we live in the patriarchal order, the family order. It was an order consisting of father, mother, and children. An order presided over by our parents and directed by love, kindness, gentleness, and godly persuasion. We are thus children of God, members of the royal family. Our souls are eternally attuned and acclimated to family things. So we're talking about this patriarchal order. This is the order we have always known. This is the order that our heavenly parents had pre-mortally. This is the order that was established with Adam and Eve. And this is the order that's going to be continuing on in the next life. We'll talk about that a little bit. But within this order, this patriarchal order, we realize that it's not a, because of the, because of the family nature of this patriarchal order, which I'll talk about here in a moment, we recognize that we need another structure. And that's why we have this hierarchical structure of the church. I'll get to that in a second. So continuing on with Adam and Eve, Adam's descendants entered into the priesthood order of God. Today we would say they went to the house of the Lord and received their blessings. The order this priest has spoken of in the scriptures is sometimes referred to as the patriarchal order because it came down from father to son. But this order is otherwise described in modern revelation as an order of family government, where a man and a woman enter into a covenant with God, just as did Adam and Eve, sealed for eternity to have posterity and to do the will and the work of God throughout their mortality. So we look at this and we say, okay, so why is it called the patriarchal order? Is it because men are in charge? No, of course not. Could you, can you imagine the heavenly parents with the heavenly father being in charge? I, I hope we understand that our heavenly parents are equally yoked. When we go to the temple, we'll talk about this more in the next couple of days. When a husband and a wife are sealed in the temple, they are sealed across an altar on equal footing, both given the same promises and given respective invitations based upon their gender. But the promises are for both of them the same. That is a critical point. The patriarchal order is an order that a husband and wife enter into together, but it's passed down from father to son through the lineage of Adam. That was the Old Testament, and today we don't see that patriarchal order being passed down in the same way, except that a husband and wife are entering into this patriarchal order together. Some people think about when you go to the temple, 
How do you receive this order? How do you receive this authority for a husband and wife to work together to become creators of kingdoms? They're given the authority to create kingdoms in the temple together. So, continuing on then. Abraham, a righteous servant of God, desiring, as he said, to be a greater follower of righteousness, sought for these same blessings. And then speaking of the order of the priesthood, he said, It was conferred upon me from the fathers. It came down from the fathers from the beginning of time, even the right of the firstborn, or the first man, who was Adam, our first father, to the fathers unto me. Notice it was being passed down at that time through the firstborn, but it was still entered into by couples. Otherwise, it would only be the firstborn child, if it was really a father ruling or a man ruling. It would only be the firstborn who was entering into the patriarchal order. That's not the case. It was couples entering into the patriarchal order. This is why it's critical we have this. So Abraham declared, I sought my appointment into the priesthood according to the appointment of God unto the fathers. When we talk about the Abrahamic covenant, we could equally be talking about Elder Maxwell. I mean, sorry, Elder McConkey talks about this quite a bit. We could equally be talking about the Sariah covenant. There is no Abrahamic covenant without Sariah, without, without Sarah, sorry. It doesn't exist. Those are covenants that they had to make with the Lord together. Abraham could not receive the blessing of seeds unless he has a wife to be able to make that covenant with him. So this is critical to understanding the Abrahamic covenant as well. So then we go back to section 84 where we were yesterday. We kind of stopped short, but we talked about this a little bit. So back to our history. We're in section 84. Starting, we did 19 to 22, and now we're going to do 23. We did this, but it's going to be even stronger here. And now this Moses plainly taught the children of Israel in the wilderness and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. And he could be more about that in Exodus chapter 40, verses 12 and 13. And then continuing the scripture, but they hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Therefore, the Lord in his wrath, for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness, which rest is the fullness of his glory. So anytime we're talking about fullness of, or we're talking about patriarchal, or we're talking about the holy order after the Son of, we're talking about this order of the Son of God, the highest order of the Melchizedek priesthood. So next, again, to President Benson, he says, this higher priesthood, with its attendant ordinances, was taken from Israel to the time of Jesus Christ. My purpose in citing this background is to illustrate that this order of the priesthood has been on the earth since the beginning, and it is the only means by which we can one day see the face of God and live. So I'm trying to set this point that this order of the priesthood is what has always existed, and what will exist, and will continue to exist. But it is the less known, or less discussed, and less talked about. And I believe, through years of studying this vow, that the main reason for that is simply because it's temple. And we have not talked temple as openly as we have in the last 10 years since the time of Joseph Smith. We've actually gone through and done studies with some of my colleagues and myself and looked at the amount of times the temple was talked about. Joseph Smith, and then it goes down and have a little bit of this. And then you even go through until even the 1990s. And then you go all the way back up, all of a sudden, President Hinckley, 2000, you start hearing temple. But then with President Nelson, it's constant. It is a temple, temple, temple all the time. A lot of that, I think, simply just happens because we are accustomed to speaking about public things publicly. And for a long time, the temple has become and is so sacred that people often don't know what to talk about or 
priesthood leaders, those who hold the priesthood speaking to men, and usually they're talking about the priest assignments. And they're not talking about it in terms of family as much. But when we talk about temple, we're talking about the patriarchal order, the highest order of the Melchizedek priesthood. So this again is from President McConkie. He says this, when Israel, I mean this is referring to this section of the Doctrine and Covenants, these parts, when Israel as a people and as a whole failed to live in harmony with the law of Christ as contained in the fullness of his everlasting gospel, the Lord in his wrath withdrew his fullness of his withdrew the fullness of his law from them because they hardened their hearts and would not enter into his rest while in the wilderness, which rested the fullness of his glory. He took Moses out of their midst and the holy priesthood also. And then he explains, that is, he took the Melchizedek priesthood, which administers the gospel, out of their midst in the sense that it did not continue and pass from one priesthood holder to another, in the normal and usual sense of the word. The keys of the priesthood were taken away with Moses so that any future priesthood ordinations requires special divine authorization. But in place of the higher priesthood, the Lord gave a lesser order, and you can see this starting in verse 26. And in place of the fullness of the gospel, he gave a preparatory gospel. The law of carnal commandments, the law of Moses, to serve as a schoolmaster to bring them, after a long day of trial and testing, back to the law of Christ in its fullness. Or, in other words, after a time of testing, when the people are righteous enough, he would bring forth and reestablish on the earth the patriarchal order of the priesthood. So here's a question and answer with Joseph Smith. I love this. He says the following answer, answer to the question. Was the priesthood of Melchizedek taken away when Moses died? And then his response. All priesthood is Melchizedek, but there are different portions or degrees of it. That portion which brought Moses to speak with God face to face was taken away. But that which brought the ministry of angels remained. All the prophets had the Melchizedek priesthood and were ordained by God himself. This then leads us into Elijah. So we're wondering, why, does Elijah, why is Elijah the one that's going to be bringing these keys? Well... Peter, James, and John are going to have keys, and they're going to restore keys, but Elijah has a specific purpose. This, again, is going to come from President Benson. It's a wonderful talk. He says this, Between Moses and Christ, only certain prophets possess the right to the higher priesthood and the blessings that could bring men into the presence of God. One of these prophets was Elijah. Elijah held the keys of the sealing power and did many mighty miracles in his day. He had power to seal the heavens, Raise the dead, relieve the drought sick and stricken land, and call down fire from heaven. I hope when you're reading this, you're remembering Elijah from America, Come Follow Me this year. I, I love Come Follow Me. I love what people are learning and studying and really deep digging a little bit deeper into the scriptures. It's been such a great experience. I love that when I talk about Elijah, so many members of the church today are saying, Oh yeah, I just read about him last month. It's so fun and it's so nice. We have perspective. Continuing on with President Benson, he was the last prophet to hold the keys of the priesthood according to the prophet Joseph Smith. He was subsequently translated and taken up into heaven without tasting death. He, as a translated being, restored the keys of this priesthood to the Savior's chief apostles, Peter, James, and John, on the Mount of Transfiguration. But within a, excuse me, but within a generation, the church was destroyed by a major apostasy, and the blessings of the priesthood were removed from the earth. So we know that Peter, James, and John did receive this higher order of the priesthood through the hands of, of Elijah. But it was Elijah's responsibility to be the one who restores these keys. Thus he restores them to Peter, James, and John, and he will be restoring them later to the prophet himself. That is one of the callings and responsibilities of Elijah the prophet. So we know that he had these. We know that Jesus Christ, when he was on the earth, though, tried to set up, I didn't say tried, set up a church. 
But during the times of Christ, we no longer have this patriarchal order of the priesthood. We no longer had Abraham and Sarah and the house of Israel, right? We did have the house of Israel, but we have a scattering of the house of Israel, something else that we're studying in the Old Testament. Because of this major scattering of the house of Israel, we no longer have a gospel that is completely family-centered. People are joining the church living in different areas, and there's a leadership style that needs to be different than father and mother together. And so we see this establishment of a church that's significantly different than the establishment of the, the government when Christ was, the government that, that Adam and Eve had and continued through Moses. So this again is on the copy. He says, the church can operate in the easiest and harmonious way because of the social setting that exists in the world. The social circumstances of the nations and the governments are such today that we can't operate through families like they did in Abraham's day. You can't have civil and ecclesiastical authority combined because the great masses of men don't belong to the church. So Christ has to establish a church that's different. I look, when I was a missionary, I used to use the cups, and I'd say, this is the original church, and I'd set up the, the, the apostles, and then I'd put up all these different things that we have, the principles of the gospel that we have, and we have this perfect church. Well, I didn't realize as a missionary, I was just talking about Christ's church when he was here. I taught it as if it was always what was established on the earth. That wasn't established on the earth with Adam and Eve. That was established on the earth with Christ. Does that make sense? That's the hierarchical structure of the church. That's Jesus Christ, and then First Presidency, Quorum of the Twelve, 70. That's the church that we look at today, and it's the public vision of the church, and that's why the church publicly is very New Testament. When people think of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they think of the public view, they think of more of the New Testament view. As members of the church, as we've gone to the temple and been endowed in the temple and received our endowments, I should say, we think of the church as both. But that's not how many people see it because they don't understand the difference between a church and a temple. With the public church, the New Testament church. The public church is a hierarchical church. That's the structure of the church today. So, looking at these structures then, we see this, this is the slide I put up before, but just to remind us, we have the total priesthood, which, which is God's total power and authority. We have a priesthood which we understand that God grants authority and power to his sons and daughters on earth to help them carry out this work. That is the priesthood that is God's that he has given to us so that we can be saviors on Mount Zion. As we are missionaries, as we're doing temple, family history work, etc. Anything to do with saving souls, we are being given priesthood power and authority to do so. And then we have the two orders of the priesthood. So the patriarchal and the hierarchical. <coughs> Excuse me. We're Okay. That brings us then to 1829. Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, President Nelson just spoke about this recently, are wondering about baptism. And then with wonderment about baptism, they're wondering about authority. And so they ask. And they receive a revelation regarding one of the most sacred topics that we have. And it's the topic of the priesthood. And so, in May of 1829, John the Baptist appears to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, and this is section 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The Doctrine and Covenants is so fantastic in just teaching us the history. There is no way, I'm just going to say this, so I'm blowing the face, there's no way Joseph could have made this stuff up. Yeah, I mean, it is impossible. I mean, the man had so much on his plate, he was doing so many things, He's receiving these revelations. I am convinced that there's there's no way he knew the intricacies and the nuances of everything that he wrote, and it's perfect. 
I mean, it's so good. It's amazing. There's no way at this age, and not having a chance to study it, could he have come up with all of this. It is clearly revelation from the Lord. It, I, I mean, I, the more I study this, the more I realize not even the most genius of genius. There's no person on the face of the earth that could have come up with this. This is God speaking to his prophet. So section 13, the words of, of John the Baptist. Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministry of angels, and the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And this shall never be taken away from the earth until the sons of Levi do do offer again an offering of righteousness, sorry, an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. I just read that for you, but there it is. It's section 13, sorry. I've always loved Oliver Calgary. I love taking people on church history trips and taking them to the priesthood restoration sites and having them listen to the words of Oliver Calgary. I won't read the whole thing, but I really do invite you to go to the Joseph Smith history. I know many of you have read it before, but just as a reminder, and Oliver Calgary, I just love this, where he says, What joy, what wonder, what amazement. While the world was wrapped and distracted, while millions were groping as a blind for the wall, and while all men were resting upon uncertainty, as a general mass our eyes beheld, our ears heard, as in the place of the day, yes, more above the glitter of the May sunbeam, which then shed its brilliance over the face of nature, then his voice, though mild, Pierced to the center of Andrew's words, I am thy fellow servant, dispelled every fear. We listened, we gazed, we admired. Twas the voice of an angel from glory, glory. Twas a message from the Most High, and as we heard, we rejoiced. While his love enkindled upon our souls, and while we were wrapped in the visions of the Almighty, where was room for doubt? Now here, uncertainty had fled, doubt had sunk no more to rise. Well, fiction and deception had fled forever. I mean, this is the priesthood being restored. If Joseph states it, this is how it happened. Oliver states it, wow. He's blown away. And as a reminder, I hope this is understood to not be demeaning in any way. We do fathers and sons camp outs in, re in memory of the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood. That's fantastic. Why are we doing women and daughter campouts for the same reason? If really, truly, the rest of the priesthood is just as significant to women as it is to men, why are we all camping out? <laughs> all of us together. I appreciate that we're trying to give some responsibility and help, and I understand some of the nuances, the things that we're trying to do to help young men understand how important it is to hold the priesthood. It's also extremely important to help young women understand that they have priesthood power and priesthood authority, and that John the Baptist came, and that they can use that, and that they are also able to be endowed with priesthood power. Just be careful. Sometimes when we overemphasize one thing, or we emphasize one thing, we automatically think that the other doesn't happen. Through that, I just ask you to be careful in how you describe these things. This is a picture I just took. We were just there last month with some wonderful friends of this beautiful place. I'll tell you, we had a bus driver who was taking our tour, and she's hoping to get baptized. But she's a little bit concerned because she wants to get baptized in the Susquehanna River, and she lives in St. Louis. So we'll see how the missionaries deal with that. But she's really excited about the Susquehanna River. 
this is just a picture of the place of Revelation. You can go there today in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and see this and stand in the sacred place where the priesthood was rebuilt at this time. Sisters and brothers, I cannot overemphasize the gratitude that I have that we have the priesthood on the earth today. We talk about this just in terms of men and women and priests and how we just talk and talk and talk. There'd be no purpose in living if there was no priesthood. Because there'd be no hope. Because the hope comes from Christ. And this is Christ's power. And his authority. And if we don't have Christ's power and authority, no one is saved. And as it says in 2 Nephi, one of the saddest scriptures, I think, on the face of the earth. I take my glasses off, I'm getting old. If I knew the opposite, I take my glasses off to read. Oh, the wisdom of God, his mercy and grace. This is 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 8. For behold, if the flesh should rise no more, our spirits must become subject to that angel who fell from before the presence of the eternal God and became the devil to rise no more. And our spirits must have become like unto him, and we become devils, angels to a devil, to be shut out from the presence of our God, and to remain with the Father of lies and misery like unto himself. Yea, to that being who beguiled our first parents, who transformed himself nigh unto an angel of light, and stirreth up the children of men into secret combinations of murder and all manner of secret works of darkness. We would be angels to a devil if it were not for the priesthood of God. That's what would happen. No hope. Talk about depression. Talk about demonic destructiveness that we are feeling. There would be no hope. But, verse 10, Oh, how great the goodness of our God, who prepareth the way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster, yea, that monster death and hell, which I call the death of the body and also the death of the spirit. And because of the way and the deliverance of our God, the Holy One of Israel, this death, of which I have spoken, which is the temporal, shall deliver up his dead, which death is the grave. We talked a little bit about the priesthood yesterday, a quote from President Ballard, where he talks about Jesus Christ and his own resurrection is done through the priesthood power. Jesus' own resurrection was only possible through the priesthood. All of our resurrection is only possible through the priesthood. Our happiness, our eternal happiness, is dependent upon the priesthood being restored. This is a big deal. It's a huge deal. This is, this is, more than we can begin to explain, which is why I beg of you to let the Spirit teach you more. So, what was restored at this time then is a hierarchical priesthood. We talked about section 13 a little bit. Now I want to talk about us. This is a quote from President Oaks. He says this. The most familiar example of function of keys is in the performance of priesthood ordinances. So I'm going to bring it to today. An ordinance is a solemn act signifying the making of covenants and the promising of blessings. In the church, all ordinances are performed under the authorization of the priesthood leader who holds the keys of that ordinance. Now I'm bringing this in at this point to help us understand that at this point, Joseph Smith received the keys of the priesthood. He did not receive sealing keys. He didn't receive keys for missionary work. These keys have not come yet. What Joseph has received are the keys of the administrative priesthood. So, these will be talking about women at church or men at church, priesthood power, priesthood authority, priesthood keys. This is what Joseph receives in 1829.
at this point, I, I just I, I want to make this very clear. There was no temple. So when, Joe, when, when President Oaks is talking about this, he's talking about these are the keys associated with the, the hierarchical or administrative function of the church. And so this is what we're thinking about when we talk about the church. In our day, we understand more, but at the time of Joseph Smith in 1829, he didn't know more. He didn't know the temple yet. These keys have not been restored. So he sets up the church, and that's why you start seeing Section 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants talking about the calling of the, of, of the Quorum of the Twelve. You start seeing other sections that are bringing in the First Presidency and the hierarchical church. The Lord is setting up his church, and then he reveals what is necessary for his temple. He's preparing the people through the church to be able to enter into the temple. And it's almost chronologically the way it goes through in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's fascinating, though. All of a sudden, you get a little glimpse, and the Lord is saying, okay, now move to Ohio, because there you'll be endowed with power on high. But in the meantime, make sure you call the Quorum of the Twelve, Zion's Camp, right? And so we're doing this all the way through. But the Lord is using his church to prepare his people to enter the temple. And he's using these experiences as well. So this is President Oaks continuing on talking about priesthood keys, Melchizedek priesthood keys. An ordinance is most commonly officiated by persons who have been ordained to an office in the priesthood, acting under the direction of one who holds priesthood keys. So again, this is him talking about the church structure. For example, the holders of the various offices of the erotic priesthood officiate the ordinance of the sacrament under the keys and direction of the bishop, who holds the keys of the erotic priesthood. The same principle applies to the priesthood ordinances in which women officiate in the temple. So in the temple, there's a temple president. Well, I'll just read what he says instead of explaining. Though women do not hold an office in the priesthood, they perform sacred temple ordinances under the authorization of the president of the temple, who holds the keys of the ordinances of the priesthood, of the temple. But, important to understand, there was no temple president until there was a temple. So that doesn't exist yet. And that's why, I'll just say this briefly, we'll talk about this a little more as well. We start talking about Relief Society and why Relief Society was restored in the red brick store and Emma and Section 25 of the Doctrine and Covenants and what it leads to and so much confusion. A lot of the confusion is simply because it was preparatory for the temple to be restored. And Joseph needed to restore the women in the Relief Society because the gospel was not restored until the women were entering into the Relief Society. The women entered into relief society so they could be trained and taught what needed to happen in order for them to receive their endowment. And then after receiving their endowment to be sealed with their spouse for eternity. The purpose of the relief society is to prepare women and families for the temple. We say it's to save souls. It's really the same thing. There's no saving souls without a temple. Right? That's the purpose of relief society. That's not good. Okay. So, continuing on President Oaks. Another example of priesthood authority under the direction of one who holds the keys are the teachings of men and women called to teach the gospel. So in one case of authority, we have men who are made to priesthood offices who perform priesthood functions, ordinances, and women also who are performing priesthood ordinances in the temple. Another reason for this authority is saying is for those who are called or given different callings. In this case, he's saying men and women called to teach the gospel, whether in classes in their home wards or in the mission field. Other examples are those who hold leadership positions in the board and exercise priesthood authority in their leadership by reason of their callings and under the setting apart and direction of the priesthood leader who holds the keys in the board and the stake. This is how the authority and power of the priesthood is exercised and enjoyed in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So notice he's talking about in the church, this is how it's exercised. I'm going to tell you a random story. Thank you, have time. I do. When I was um, here as a young BYU student, 
I, I wanted to go on a mission, but then I turned 20 and I wasn't sure. You know what I mean? Like, I've always wanted to, but then when reality set in, it was really hard to make that decision. And um, my father was kind and just kind of saying whatever you think. My mom was a little bit concerned because I wasn't making the decisions as fast as she would like, and I think she was afraid I'd never get married. And she was almost right. But I did, and I'm so grateful, and the mission prepared me for that. Um, but I, before I set my mission papers in, I had a roommate, and she's a dear friend of mine, and we've talked about this, so she's great to be telling the story. I had a roommate who, long story short, we didn't get along. Not the two of us, but the situation of the roommates did not get along. It was very difficult for me. And I ended up moving out of the situation, and I never wanted to be with any of them again. Like, never ever again. But a few months later, I got a call from my dear roommate, and she said, Barb, I just got my mission call. I was so excited for her, and she said, I'm going to the Los Angeles Temple Spanish-speaking visitor center. And I said, well, that's great. That's great. I covered up the thing, the phone. I remember looking at my sister and just saying, she just got the mission call she deserves. Like, she's going to the hood. Spanish. 
<laughs> there is an odd, and I'm not happy. <laughs> and then I started crying, and crying, and crying, and crying. You don't get to send your mission papers in, you have to, back in the day, you actually had to like mail it in. Literally midnight. I was at the post office praying whether or not I should or should not drop the letter in the box to accept the call. I mean, they could have made a mistake, you know? I mean, give them another chance. I had a friend who got two mission calls. I called him once and said, don't open that one or send me another one. That happened to one of my dear friends at the time. I was waiting for that to happen. <laughs> the difference is he never opened his, so he didn't actually know what the first call was. But I dropped it in. Long story short, she was my trainer. <laughs> Isn't that great? The only person I can honestly say at that time, not the only person, the only situation I didn't want to have to be associated with again. And I was so grateful that I had a father with priesthood keys, a bishop with priesthood keys, a mission president with priesthood keys, a first presidency in the Corona Fall with priesthood keys who somehow, all working together, received revelation that got me on my mission at the exact time and the exact place for me to be in the exact spot to be with the person who I needed to forgive and be forgiven of. And then we just knocked doors. We actually were together in that room, and I remember the mission president saying, I just had such inspiration that Sister Barbara Morgan, Sister Morgan and Sister Peterson should be companions. We just looked at each other like, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. We apologized for two hours as we drove down to our place. Literally, the first door we knocked on, really, this is longer than I was expecting, the first door we knocked on got baptized. I have to tell you this thing, or, I mean, I never mind, but we had, you know, we still had two more days, so we're good. Her name was Ochi. I didn't speak a little Spanish, but I prayed for her as my companion said, if the Lord wants you to get baptized, will you? And she said, yes, if the Lord doesn't want me to get baptized. And she said, but if he does, will you? And she said, well, if he does, then my family's going to be so upset. Long story short, she prayed. I prayed, my companion prayed, she prayed. In the middle of Zochi's prayer, she looked and just said, after a long pause, my husband's going to kill me. <laughs> that night, we received a phone call from her husband. It was very emotional. I, of course, was just more listening and watching my companion because I didn't understand the very quick Spanish that was thrown emotionally through the phone. Long story short, he said, sisters, I was an area, I was, I was an assistant to the president in Mexico. And I'm a member of the church, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I hold the priesthood. But I was afraid if I ever told my girlfriend and my fiance and now my wife that she would leave me. So I never have. Would you be okay if I got my life ready together and I baptized her? Well, sure. <laughs> yeah. The second door also got baptized. I won't tell you that whole story. The third, though, baptized Zochi, his wife, and our next convert that day. So what does this have to do with priesthood? We were sister missionaries, serving God with power and authority. We have been called, we have been set apart, 
We were on his errand. We spoke with power and authority. Her more than me at that point, no question. She was a better person than more righteous than she still is. But she committed somebody to baptism following the Spirit and promising blessings to both of them. Speaking in the name of the Lord with one who has priesthood authority to do so. I didn't understand at the time that we were using priesthood power and authority as we were teaching the gospel to save souls, but I do now. And I wish I would have known then better. Sister missionaries are being taught so much better today than they are. So much better today than they were then. But regardless, it was still priesthood power and priesthood authority. Were they ordained to a priesthood office that gave them the responsibility and duty and authority to baptize? No, we were not. But were we given priesthood power and authority to speak in the name of God, make special promises, invite, and help somebody have eternal salvation and exaltation? Absolutely. And we worked together with the elders to get them to the temple one year later, and they made it. Both of them and Felipe. It was a powerful experience for two sister missionaries. And one sister missionary who thought the prophet may have had it wrong. <laughs> he did not have it wrong. He speaks for God. So, continuing on then with women in church. This is President Oaks's quote. Since we are not accustomed to speaking of women having the authority of the priesthood in church comments, but what other authority can it be? When a woman, young or old, is set apart to preach the gospel as a full-time missionary, she is given priesthood authority to perform a priesthood function. The same is true when a woman is set apart to function as an officer or teacher in the church organization under the direction of one who holds the keys to the priesthood. Whoever functions in an officer calling received from one who holds priesthood keys exercises priesthood authority in performing her or his assigned duties. Who has more priesthood authority? The young men's president or the young women's president in fulfilling their callings? The same. I hope we get that. If a husband and wife are called to teach a primary class, who's presiding in that room? <laughs> From the front of the place. She said the woman, you know it. But no. They preside together. That's what presiding is. They're called to lead together, selflessly, right? Leading, presiding in the church is different than presiding in the home. They're called to lead together as they go teach that. The husband and the wife can call on people to pray just as the husband can call on people to pray in that classroom. They're called together, right? They both have that priesthood power and authority, authority based upon their calling, power based upon their righteousness. We can give example of an example and example out going, going through with this. I love it when men of the church and women of the church understand that and use it synergistically. I mean, how much better is a youth conference when the young women's president and the young men's president work together and understand that they're both there for the salvation and the exaltation of the young men and young women? It's powerful. It's powerful. And what an example of it is for the young women and the young men in their future colleagues and their future family to be able to see the women and the men working so well together unitedly. In fact, in 2015, as we know, President Nelson invited, or sorry, President, I was say, Deseret Book invited the Relief Society General Presidency, Young Women's General Presidency, and Primary General Presidency to serve the Executive Council of the Church. It never happened before. I'm not going to show you all these quotes, but Sister Osterson wrote the news first on her Facebook page, announced what had happened under the direction of President Monson. And then Elder Oaks, significantly on his Facebook page, 
talks about how pleased he was with Sister, Sister Oscarson's assignment, and then he also talks about the others that are there as well. He talks about the name change of family, and then I think this is critical from Elder Cook. I think this is a powerful way to instruct local leaders about how to more effectively integrate the perspective of women to strengthen their local boards and states. When we're talking about priesthood, we're talking about boards, we're talking about in church, I hope that we realize that it is supposed to be done in unity for the purpose of the salvation and exaltation of the children of God on the earth today. It's a synergistic experience. Sister Bing said, unity is essential to the divine work we are privileged and called to do, but it doesn't just happen. It takes effort and time to really counsel together, to listen to one another, understand others' viewpoints, and share experiences. But the process results in more inspired decisions. Whether at home or under church responsibilities, the most effective way to fulfill our divine potential is to work together, blessed by the power and authority of the priesthood and our differing yet complementary roles. I hope we all understand this. Gone are the days when we would say, we want to thank the priesthood for passing the sacrament. That's critical. It's, we don't hear that very much. Sometimes we still hear it, but we don't hear it very much. And some people will say, that's such a silly nuance, who cares? I care. Why? Because the priesthood is much more than any individual. It's God's power and authority. Why? Because there are some young women and some young men who have been abused by one who says that he holds the priesthood. And what does that mean to them? It means the priesthood is abusive. And that is sick and it's sad and it's demeaning to God. There are many other reasons, but there are strong reasons we've been asked to not call individuals the priesthood. So I appreciate the change. This final quote, referring to women and what we are on this earth, this is from J.D. Talmadge, he says this, the world's greatest champion of women and womanhood is Jesus the Christ. And I would say, the world's greatest champion of man and manhood is Jesus the Christ. I simply testify today about the responsibility and role of, responsibility and role of women and men in participating in the church functions. And the critical role the church is and in allowing for and preparing and inviting all the children of God and our heavenly parents on the earth to be able to have what they have. The whole purpose of Adam and Eve coming to this earth was so that they could become like their heavenly parents. The whole purpose of us coming to the earth is so that we could become like our heavenly parents. It's really that simple. The only way we can do it is through the atonement of Jesus Christ and his power and authority and our righteousness. I testify that God is a God of love, that we do have heavenly parents, as Elder Reverend talked about. I testify that we have a prophet on the earth today, once again, who is doing all he can, pleading with his brothers and sisters on the earth today to study and use the priesthood power and authority that they have been given. And this power and authority in our day is necessary to bring in the second coming of Jesus Christ. We are the only church on the earth that has that responsibility, the only one. We're not going to do it. Who else is? No one. There's no one else but the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and those covenant-keeping members. I testify that this is the Church of Jesus Christ. <coughs>